Thank you so very much, Raymond, for that wonderful prayer and praise team again for such excellent music this morning. Uh, you've noticed this morning that our rough-hewn in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, the focus is on the cross. Jesus is now at this stage in the Gospel record, just hours away from the crucifixion. And what Mark does is he will methodically take us through the events in chapters 14 and 15. And as we go through those events under his skillful hand, uh, directed by the Holy Spirit, over and over again we will see the tremendous cost that Jesus had to pay. Uh, Oswald Chambers was a great devotional writer, and he wrote the great devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. And look at what Chambers one time wrote. The heart of salvation is the cross of Christ. The reason salvation is so easy to obtain is that it cost God so much. The cross was the place where God and sinful man merged with a tremendous collision and where the way to life was opened. But all the cost and pain of the collision was absorbed by the heart of God. We just sang together these words, and I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. No, I'll never know how much it cost. And while we'll never be able to comprehend the cost of the cross, we can begin to try to understand. And so this morning, we're going to look at a message that I'm simply entitling, The Cost of the Cross. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and let's begin this morning by reading at verse 12. I'm going to ask that our monitor in the back be turned on so that I can see the images that I'll be working through this morning. But let's turn to Mark 14, and would you follow along with me as I read verses 12 through 16. God's word to us this morning. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of them of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover ready with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the great cost that you pray, paid for our salvation. And as we look together at the truth of your word, that you loved us, and therefore you gave yourself for us, 
may we be led to love you more and more. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I want you to notice that the first cost that Jesus had to pay was that he was sacrificed by his Father. Now, the first thing we notice in the verses that we read is that Jesus took great care to eat the Passover meal with his disciples in secret. You'll notice that the names were secret. In verse 13, he says that he sent two of his disciples. You'll know that the signal for them was secret. He said, you will see a man carrying a jar of water who will meet you. That was highly unusual because men only carried water skins. It was women that would carry the water pots. And so for us today, this would very much be like seeing a man carrying a purse, just something that you do not see. And so it suggests to us that the owner of the room was large, probably was a believer because he directed his servant to use this secret signal. You'll notice that the location was secret. In verse 14, Jesus said, wherever he enters, there was a secret code. Verse 14, Jesus said, you are to say to him, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then you will notice that the owner was a secret agent because Jesus just simply said, he, uh, they didn't know who it would be, will show you a large upper room. Doesn't this all seem just sort of like a spy movie? Doesn't this seem that way? I mean, there's a secret code, there's a secret agent, there's a secret location, there is a secret signal. It is very clear that Jesus wanted to eat the Passover in total secrecy. Now, we have to ask the question, why? And when we do, there are two answers that I think are given. Number one, Jesus clearly hid the place where they would be meeting because he did not want Judas to reveal it. This was the most important meal ever eaten in the history of the world. And Jesus did not want Judas' betrayal to interrupt this very critical meal. But there's a second answer to the reason why, and that is this. Jesus was planning to reveal himself as the Passover lamb who was going to be sacrificed. We need to note the chronology here. Look back at verse 12, and you'll notice it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. That would have been Thursday before Good Friday. In the Hebrew calendar, it would have been Nisan 14. And on that day, the lambs for Passover were slaughtered between 3 and 5 p.m. As the head of a household would bring his lamb to be slaughtered, some of the blood of that lamb would be splashed up against the altar and then the head of the home would bring the lamb home to be eaten for Passover. The meal was usually eaten between 6 p.m. And according to the Old Testament, it had to be finished by 12 a.m. 
the Jewish New Day began on sundown. So what this meant was Passover occurred on Good Friday. Think about what this means. As Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, which actually was on Good Friday, he was celebrating his own Passover as the Passover lamb. When he took the bread and said, this is my body. When he took the cup and said, this is my blood. He was saying, I am the Passover lamb. And as each household celebrated their deliverance so many years ago from Egypt by the killing of a lamb, so the father was going to sacrifice his own son to accomplish our spiritual redemption. In just a few moments, we will read verse 27 where Jesus quotes the Old Testament and he quotes the Father who said, I the Father will strike the shepherd. And in just a few hours, Jesus would experience that awful moment when bearing the sins of the world, the Father with whom he had had perfect fellowship would now turn away from his Son for the very first time. I want you to think about this for just a moment. The first person of the triune God who said, This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased in Him. And the second person of the triune God who said, I and the Father are one. Who said the Father loves the Son. Those two persons of the blessed triune God would in a few moments, a few hours from this very time, be separated as the Father's wrath was poured upon His Son. This was Jesus' final meal on earth. And it graphically explains Jesus is the Passover Lamb. But there's one more thing that we need to see here. The cross is ultimately the most satisfying answer to the problem of evil. Any thinking person who lives in this world asks this question on a regular basis. If God loves us so much, why does he allow so much evil in this world? Why doesn't God do something? I heard about a son who, a father whose son was killed in one of our wars in battle for America. And when his pastor heard that his son had been killed, he thought to himself, I need to go over and console that father. When he arrived in pain and anger, the father blurted out, Where was God when my son was killed? And that pastor very lovingly, very wisely said to that father, God was in the same place he was when his own son was killed. What an answer. You see, the greatest injustice that has ever occurred 
was the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God. All the evil in the world, the Bible says, is ultimately due to human sin. It is absolutely just for God to punish sinners. But what did God do? God sent His own Son to be punished in our place. Standing by while it happened. And it is the greatest act of love that has ever occurred. Let's read it together, shall we? Would you join me? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 See, the cross is ultimately the most satisfying answer to the question of evil. God, who would have been perfectly just in condemning the whole world, instead sacrificed His Son that the world through Him might be saved. That's love. That's love. You see, the cost of the cross was Jesus was sacrificed by His own Father. Let's look at the next cross that Jesus had to pay. Secondly, Jesus was betrayed by His friend. Would you look with me starting at verse 17? And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now I think we all know that Passover was a family time. It was customary that more than one family would share the meal together. Sometimes it was at least two families. And so the sharing of the Passover meal really was a sign of intimate fellowship. Uh, you will notice two times in the verses that we just read that Jesus makes this uh, emphasis. In verse 18, he talks about eating with me. And then in verse 20, he talks about dipping into the dish with me. That Jesus was eating the Passover with his disciples very much shows that they were his family, including Judas. Judas was there as the Passover began. He left before the Lord's Supper was instituted. Think about that with me. 
The horror of the betrayal is not that it was an enemy who turned Jesus over, but it was an intimate friend. Now, if you have never seen this in this passage before, what we see here is this. Jesus reached out to Judas Iscariot to the very end. If you would ask yourself today, how deep is the love of Jesus? You could see the depth of his love no greater than how he reached out to Judas. Let's look at it together for just a few moments here this morning. Here are the ways in which right up to the end, Jesus reached out to Judas. Number one, notice that Jesus washed Judas's feet. If you were to go to John 13 and look at the foot washing, you would understand that it occurred between verse 17 and 18 here in Mark 14. And you recall when it was over that Jesus has this conversation with Peter explaining why the foot washing was necessary. And remember what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Think about what Jesus was doing. He was saying, Judas, old friend, you are not clean. It was a loving appeal to the conscience of Judas to come clean. Let me ask you this morning, are you clean? Have you been washed clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Just as Jesus in love appealed to the conscience of Judas and said, you're not clean, you can be clean, so Jesus appeals to your conscience, he appeals to my conscience. And he says, let me wash you clean. Notice secondly, the Bible tells us that Judas was reminded by Jesus of Ahithophel. When Jesus says in verse 18, the one who is going to betray me is the one who is eating with me, he is quoting from Psalm 41 and verse 9. And in that psalm, David is lamenting his most trusted counselor, Ahithophel, who betrayed him and joined Absalom. And you remember the story of Ahithophel when his plot with Absalom uh, did not work out and backfired. Ahithophel went and committed suicide. And what is Jesus now saying to Judas? Judas, Judas, remember Ahithophel. Remember Ahithophel. You know what happened? Just like Ahithophel went and committed suicide, 
So Judas committed suicide as well. And think of this. Jesus graciously acted to prevent Judas's suicide. I want you to notice thirdly, Judas was seated at Jesus' left, a place of honor. We cannot be sure of the arrangement of the seating at the Last Supper, but it appears that most Bible students believe it was in the way that this artist has drawn the scene. We know that John, the beloved disciple, was seated at the place of honor at Jesus' right. We know that Peter was seated some distance away because he motioned to John and he said, Ask him, who is the one who will betray you? And then we believe that Judas was seated in the second highest place of honor immediately to Jesus' left. I want you to think about this. As Jesus reclined back at the table, as they did at a banquet like this, his head would have been inches from the heart of Judas. What an extraordinary act of kindness as Jesus honored Judas at the Passover. I want you to notice number four. The Bible tells us that Jesus offered Judas renewed love and forgiveness. In verse 20, when he said, It is going to be the one who dips bread into the dish with me to take a morsel from the table, dip it in a common dish, and then offer it to another person. That was a gesture of friendship in that day. Jesus was reaching out to Judas and saying to him, Turn to me, it is not too late. And then, of course, the final thing that Jesus did was he warned Judas of his awful fate. He said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Jesus was telling Judas, You still can repent. There is still time. When I look at this, and I ask myself, How Deep is the love of Jesus. It is so deep. He did all this for the betrayer. Now I need to pause here and draw out a couple of lessons for all of us this morning. And here is the first one. Jesus understands our deepest pain. I remember many years ago sitting in Chicago listening to a sermon, and in the sermon the pastor said, people pain is the worst kind of pain. And I thought that's exactly right. 
I have actually heard it said that sometimes divorce is a greater pain than the death of a spouse because the betrayal is so deep. And some of you here today who have been through painful divorces, you understand the depth of that betrayal. And sometimes we ask this question, does anybody understand the pain that I've gone through? And the Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He knows the deepest pain. The second lesson that I draw from this is that Jesus never stops reaching out to us. If Jesus reached out to Judas this much, imagine how much he extends his hand to you. Tonight I will be preaching this very message in the prison to some of the men that have create, committed the greatest crimes that perhaps we could imagine. And can you imagine the good news that I will bring to them tonight? If Jesus Christ could reach out to Judas like this, then not a man in that prison tonight cannot come to the saving grace of God because Jesus loves them equally as He loved Judas. What a message this is. I think when we ultimately get to heaven, one of the greatest stories we're going to share in heaven is this, how patient Jesus was with me. How patient Jesus was with me. And that's why I'm here, in His marvelous grace. You see, Jesus was sacrificed by His Father, and He was betrayed by a friend. Let's look at the third cost. I want us to drop down to verse 17. And I want us to notice that he was deserted by his followers. Look with me, if you would, at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said to me, theoretically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Do you notice the total emphasis here is on the aloneness of Jesus? That's the point here. What is being emphasized is that Jesus would be totally alone. And even Peter, who swore his allegiance with an oath, would fall away. When Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows twice, the crowing of the rooster in that culture always signified the approach of mourning. 
And so what Jesus was saying is, Peter, you are so cocksure of yourself, you will fall so quickly that you will deny me before daybreak, and Jesus would die all alone. You know, as I thought about this, it dawned on me. The hardest task in life is not facing problems, but it is facing problems alone with no companion. When you have companions with you, it is so much easier to face the difficult problems of life. But when you have no companions and you must face them alone, that is the hard thing in life. A pastor friend of mine went through a very, very difficult time in which he was betrayed in his church. A man whom he trusted put him in a very difficult spot before the entire congregation. And when this pastor friend of mine courageously did the right thing, people in his church whom he thought were his friends turned against him. And in the aftermath of that, as he was so devastated, he said to me, the only ones you can count on are God and your own family. Now, he was wrong about that, but that's how he felt in the midst of his pain. But now think about this. Jesus' disciples were his family. Where did that leave him? No human help in the hour of his need. And then the Father himself would turn away from him. I used to love to sing this song in church. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Jesus was deserted by his followers. By the way, did you notice how Jesus endured this cost? Did you notice what he said in verse 28? Look at it. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's how Jesus endured the cost. He knew that he would be vindicated. He knew that every unjust accusation would be overcome. Every evil taunt would be proved wrong. And he knew through his resurrection, the suffering lamb would become the ruling lion. And that's what sustained him. By the way, do you know this, this is the same hope that sustains us? I want you to listen for a moment to these words from Hebrews 6, verses 10 to 12. Listen to the same hope that sustains us. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The same hope that sustained Jesus is the same hope that sustains us. God is not unjust to forget our work and our love. And so he says, through faith and patience, you will inherit the promises. And that's how we endure the cost of following him. Remember how we began? I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. No, I'll never know how much it cost. And now we see just a glimpse. He was sacrificed. He was betrayed. He was deserted. That's how much it cost. Let's be together, shall we, in prayer. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I know of no greater way to stir up a deeper love for the Lord Jesus Christ than to see the cost that He paid for your salvation and mine. I don't often shed tears during our singing, but today, this morning, as our praise team led us through those songs, knowing the message that was coming, tears came to my eyes this morning. And this morning, what we need to understand is the whole motivation for living the Christian life is loving Jesus. The whole reason to turn away from sin and live a life of righteousness and holiness, the whole reason to love the people of God and share the gospel with the lost and serve in the church is because of the great cost that Jesus paid for us. And today, as we now will begin to look closer and closer at all that Jesus endured, it's an opportunity for our love for Him to grow deeper and deeper.
And I want you, as I do this morning, just to pause. And in your own heart, just quietly, so no one else can hear, thank your Savior. Thank Him that He was willingly sacrificed by His Father. Thank Him that He was willingly betrayed by a man who had become His very family. And thank You that He willingly died alone deserted by every human friend and ultimately by his Father in heaven as well. And as you thank him, tell him you love him. Tell him that you love him. If it has been a while that you have bowed your head and just said, Lord Jesus, I love you. Do that now. It is the greatest power the Christian can ever know to set him free, to live for God, that Jesus loves me, and I love him. O oh, blessed Lord Jesus Christ. It always works this way. We first believe in you. Then out of that belief we love you. And then from that love we obey you. And growing faith will always lead to growing love. And growing love will always produce greater obedience. There is no other way the Christian life is meant to work. We love you today because you first loved us. For Jesus' sake, amen.